You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I had to think about that entirely too hard. Uh, Someone who has other things on his mind, like the change in seasonal plant reproductive activity, is Dr. David Grubbs. He is uh, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. How's that pollen treating you, David? Yeah, it's not great. I'm, yeah. Yeah, less said, better. And in the land where there is no pollen, but there might still be snow on the ground, I don't know, I'm sure he'll tell us, is Dr. Michael Farmer. He is an assistant professor of English at, ah. Crown College. I was going to say St. Bonifacius College, but that's not right. Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, uh, how are things? We're good, Nathan. No snow on the ground. It's supposed to snow this weekend, though. All right, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. I don't well, know guys, what's so uh, funny. <laughs> At least my car is not covered with yellow stuff. Yes. No, That's all of that's true. I would so much rather have snow right now. This is just terrible. We're suffering Yeah, here. my favorite thing is the first uh, hard rain after the pollen accumulates, where you get that uh, pollen sludge. In the gutters. Ugh. It's just glorious. <laughs> <laughs> Do they have, we, we really, I mean, I, I forget all about pollen because we don't have that yellow, that yellow mess up here. Do they have that in Indiana, Nathan, or is that just a Southeast thing? No, and in fact, in Indiana, I, I'm going to tell this story hopefully quickly. Uh, it's kind of a point of pride to wait the longest into summer before you turn your air conditioner on in your home. Uh, and before that, you open your windows at night. So uh, when I first moved to Georgia, uh, you know, it started to warm up in the spring and I decided to open up all the windows overnight. (laughs) And uh, listeners, if you've never been to Georgia, if you do that in Georgia in April, uh, everything in your house gets covered with this thick yellow dust. Uh, And my wife let me know in very clear terms that I should not have done that. I bet. Yep. Clear, unrepeatable terms. (laughs) well guys uh on the network uh david grubbs has made his uh sectarian review debut tell us a little bit about that david yeah danny anderson and charles hackney and myself had a really fun conversation about a 1950s bbc serial called quatermass and the pit uh it has a little bit of archaeology, a little bit of aliens, a little bit of post-war, Cold War paranoia. You know, something for everybody. It was good times. Fun stuff. By the time this drops, we will also have a Christian feminist podcast episode on Beyonce. I'm looking forward to listening to that one. And we have a City of Man episode on states' rights. I haven't had a chance to listen yet, but I'm looking forward to doing so. Anything else uh, going on in the network? Uh, Michael, you did an interview about Larry Norman for Profiles recently, didn't you? I did. It was a blast. I Go listen to that, listeners. Cool. I, I had a Profiles uh, come out last week from when we are recording, and I think one that's going to be coming out uh, the week that this episode drops. Um, the, f- the first was with Phil Riken, uh president of Wheaton College. Uh, he wrote... Uh, uh, a little book about Tolkien and uh, the and the the three offices, the threefold offices of Christ, and then the second is an interview with Fred Sanders uh, about a collection of essays on the doctrine of eternal generation. So, 
those both of those were a lot of fun. Who said I don't know what that means? <laughs> I, I don't think I said it. Did you? I'm saying it now. I don't know what that means. Okay. All right. Well, you can listen. I'll to have the to listen to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, let's not go into that right now. Uh, well, listeners, uh, over the last three weeks, as you know, I uh, enjoyed conversations with David and Michael about a fairly dense book of theology, so I figured I'd turn to something more pop culture this week. Uh, as you know, if you are a sports fan or even if you're on social media, uh, the Final Four is about to happen when this episode drops. And so I figured we would talk a bit about the NCAA men's basketball tournament. So, David, the NCAA itself is not much more than 100 years old. And the men's basketball tournament, it's been going on for slightly less than 80 years. So it's not as old as the World Cup or the Modern Olympics or the Stanley Cup. But it is an older event than the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals. So in your experience, and again... None of the three of us have watched a whole lot of these tournaments, but what place does this tournament hold alongside other national and international sporting events? And we'll take this one around the horn, so pass it to Michael when you're done. The Again, speaking out of vast inexperience, so, you know, dear listeners, take all of that into account. The, 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 the Grubbs proviso applies March Madness is particularly notable for its scale. Um, just, at, but my impression has has always been just sort of paying attention when the the men's basketball tournament comes around uh, to just feeling like it was a very very big thing. Uh, not 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 just big in terms of popularity, but big as in like there there was just a whole lot going on. So I poked around and. Uh, the national, uh, the lead up to the national championship in NCAA men's basketball involves 68 teams in six rounds of games. Uh, by comparison, uh, the NFL playoffs leading up to the Super Bowl involve 12 teams in four rounds. The NBA playoffs are 16 teams played in three rounds before the finals. And the World Cup involves 32 teams playing in two stages over the course of a month leading up to uh, the final game of that. So just in, in terms of how many teams are active, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty enormous. Uh, maybe, there are other, maybe there are other events that are uh, comparable, but it, it's just really, really big. The simultaneity of it is also uh, part of it, um, and all of this is, you know, this is all postseason. So, you know, it's like how do sixty-eight teams play six rounds of games in one month? Uh, there's just always something going on. Um, it's a huge ratings uh, boost for uh, the the networks that get it. Um, so the scale of it the simultaneity of it, uh, but also the sustained attention to all of it at one time. We're going to talk later on about the phenomena of the, the, the bracket, but it seems to me that more people are paying more attention to more of the whole tournament than in these other uh, comparable sporting events. And I pass the torch. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I've probably watched half of a March Madness game because uh, my wife and her mother really love college basketball, and I, uh, my mother-in-law happened to be at our house uh, during March Madness once, so I watched part of a game. Uh, it seemed fine. <laughs> I always go for the Catholic school if, uh, if one is playing. <laughs> That's, that's the only way I know how to pick. Can you even name 64 colleges? I could name 64 colleges. I don't know if I could name more than 40 teams in any given tournament without looking at the bracket. I mean, that is so many people. How many teams are in the Division One NCAA? Honestly, I don't know. No idea. We've clearly done our research for this episode. 
<laughs> yeah, I um I don't remember having much consciousness of this when I was a kid, which is weird because my dad is super into basketball, but um I I first became aware of it I don't know, 10 years ago. That's doesn't doesn't say much about my uh interaction with sports culture, does it? And see when I think of this tournament, I mean, there were some people who paid attention to it when I was in high school because those are the days of Bobby Knight's Indiana Hoosiers and, you know, the the grand old days of IU football, uh, basketball, pardon me. Uh, but really, when I became very aware of it was when I was in college. I went to college in East Tennessee, so I had a lot of classmates from North Carolina. And people from North Carolina, I mean, just live and breathe the NCAA tournament in a way that uh, I, I really found astounding, uh, you know, which makes sense. I mean, you've got, you know, some historical historical powerhouses there your duke your wake forest your unc and if i said those out of order listeners i'm sure you're already writing your email that says i should have mentioned your favorite team first uh but yeah i mean you know in my experience i mean this is something that uh people who are hardcore about sports definitely care about but especially people from certain regions of the country i mean this is their sporting event and, you know, one thing that's interesting, David, that you picked up on is that uh, unlike the Super Bowl, which is a, a one-night event uh, and which people, you know, have one-night parties for, uh, this one lasts a month. So, I mean, it's a lot more like the World Cup in that respect. I mean, yeah. uh, you can have a party when your team is playing. Uh, but as far as I know, there aren't that many people who host a party that lasts all four weeks of the NCAA tournament. Right. right. It's kind of like the Olympics in that sense, too. Yeah, that, that's a good comparison. I like that. I like that. Though, um, that means some other things that are in play, um, national, uh, national interest versus regional interest versus international interest. Like in the World Cup, you have national teams um, in, you know, in, in, in March Madness, you have uh, in, uh, in the NFL, you have you know the different kind of different hat the, the the two different major major league football um, associations then pitting off against each other in that major sort of regional way, but then with uh, with the national championship for NCAA basketball, it's like every little region like like universities I've never even heard of could be in it in a way that that I, I just don't see in the football side of the NCAA. Right. I mean, just to pick an example that immediately occurs to me, I couldn't tell you what state Gonzaga University is, but I know it's always in the tournament. Washington, right? I just told you I couldn't tell you what state <laughs> I think Gonzaga University is in. And I know that for the lamest possible reason, which is that's where Bing Crosby went. Well, there you go. That's not a lame that's not, reason. That's not a lame reason. That's great. That's like Jeopardy. <laughs> I think that's right. I think I think I think Gonzaga's in Washington. Also, the well, let's start. I'll go ahead, David. Just like one last point is the loyalty to teams versus loyalty to just sort of watching Major League Football in general. Like a lot of people are going to watch the Super Bowl who aren't huge fans of either team that makes it. Yeah, that's true. Um, but then it seems to me as if the 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 basketball champ national championship uh, college uh, the college national championship involves much more widespread interest in everything in in kind of the whole state of play um, people watching games by teams that they have no loyalty or interested in whatsoever because they're just much more interested in seeing good basketball played on on the whole. Do you think that's true? I my Victoria and her mother watched Duke because that's that's the team her family roots for for reasons that are beyond me. Um, I, do do people just watch all the games? I I assumed people mostly watched games with teams they cared about. I have heard people talk about watching games that they don't really have a dog in the hunt. But again, I think. Some of that's going to get explained when we get when we start talking about brackets. 
I am asking such stupid questions that I kind of want to shove myself into a locker. I apologize to any of our basketball-inclined listeners. <laughs> well, I mean, as, as we said at the outset, none of the three of us is a big NCAA basketball fan. Uh, so, I mean, we are definitely examining this as outsiders. So, as you continue to write your angry emails, listeners, just realize that uh, you're picking on people smaller than you. Uh, but... Michael, we, we brought up the regional angle, and I want to explore that a little bit. When I moved to the South in 1995, uh, I moved from, you know, the Indianapolis area where, you know, the NFL and the NBA were king. And, you know, really, we thought of the NCAA, you know, as, as sort of a minor league that sent people like Reggie Miller and Peyton Manning to Indianapolis to play big leagues. Now, there were people who were sort of ESPN purists, who said that, you know, the NCAA game is better than the NBA game, but really as far as, you know, what people talked about at high school or wherever else was NBA, NFL. But when I moved to the South, people watched the NBA Finals to be sure, but they never really get fired up for them the way that they do for March Madness. So first of all, in your experience, I mean, do Southern sports fans prefer the NCAA like that in basketball? as they do in football. And if that is the case, I mean, you know, why do you think it is the case? Or I guess if it's not, why did I perceive it that way? Okay. I, I, I think you're right. Um, and, and I think part of the issue here is how many good NBA teams are there from the Southeast? You have the Orlando Magic, and now you have the Miami Heat. Uh, and I guess in the 90s, you had the Charlotte Hornets who are no longer in Charlotte. Is that correct? No, but there is another team in Charlotte now. My point is, when I was growing up, anyway, there were not a lot of there were not a lot of good NBA teams from the Southeast, and in particular in Georgia, you had the Hawks, uh, a team which I'm not sure anybody really roots for. So the the fact that the fact that regionally we were underrepresented, let's say, I think probably plays a part in that, and probably plays a part in the NCAA uh, football as well, right? I mean, it's you're going to be happier rooting for UGA than for the Atlanta Falcons for the most part. You definitely would have been happier rooting for UGA than the Atlanta Falcons 20 years ago. Um, Other than that, I can really only report what the two basketball fans in my life say about the difference, which is that college basketball uh, has less showboating and it's less uh, street ball is the term Victoria uses than the NBA, which I, I, we, we watched an NBA game a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not sure they even call traveling penalties anymore. Um, whereas the, the, the college games, from my understanding, tend to stick a little closer to uh, fundamentals, I guess is the word. Does that, does that fit your experience? Yeah, that sounds like a narrative I've heard. Uh, David, I'd like to hear from you. I mean, uh, in your circles, I mean, do people watch the NBA at all? I remember the NBA being a bigger deal when I was when I was younger. Um, I I really don't know. I really don't know now. Um, just just in terms of conversation, I remember talking much more to other children generally about people like Michael Jordan than. Then I talk with my peers now about what's going on in the in the NBA, but part of that may is almost certainly a function of where life has taken me and what conversations I find myself in. Just um, for kicks, David, can you name an NBA player? Uh, no, probably. I was just, I was just, I was just curious. Like, like, like I probably could have if if you hadn't if you hadn't like like asked me sure yeah there's like a there's like a little guy named steven yeah yeah stephen curry yeah that guy anyway um let's see just just kind of back backing up what you said michael um of the 16 nba teams that are east of the mississippi five of them are in the south and there are none in Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, Mississippi, or South Carolina. And all of those states, each of those states has at least one team and sometimes multiple teams in the SEC. 
you know, there are 14 teams in the SEC. So, j like, just in terms of numbers, um, you've got you've got states like like Alabama has no NBA team, but it's got two SEC teams. You know, who are right. they gonna, who are they going to watch? Um, the Hawks. <laughs> no. So that's fair yeah. enough. Yeah, I mean, Michael, to address your question, I mean, I I have heard that complaint that you know the NCAA is is more fundamentally sound. I guess my response to that is I'm not nearly a good enough basketball player to be able to tell the difference. Yeah, me, um, me neither. What well, what I can tell is that you know the NBA game for my money uh, is more entertaining to watch because it's more accurate shooting. It's you know it's basically the best players from all 68 of that teams condensed down into a handful of teams. I, I so, also I mean, find it very difficult to choose a college to root for. And I can't watch a, I can't watch a sports event where I'm not rooting for somebody. So I made the crack about choosing the, the Catholic college, but I mean, really it's a toss up watching that. Whereas, you know, I'm not a huge sports fan, but vaguely I have cities I support in the in the in major league sports and so i can you know i can root against the team from california uh or i can root for you know atlanta or minnesota or whoever but i i find it very difficult to care about college sports games yeah that makes some good sense that makes some good sense well david uh and you know i'll preface this by saying i do not expect you to talk about its effects on the actual college basketball game but sociologically uh one rule that i find fascinating that really has only taken hold in the last decade or so is the so-called one and done rule so this is a rule that you know in order to enter the nba draft you have to have one year separation from high school what i find fascinating about this david is that it kind of illustrates this strange relationship between the ncaa's players who are not allowed to take any money for playing, the NCAA itself that makes half a billion dollars every March, and the NBA in which the players and the commentators are paid entertainers. So, I mean, you know, I gave you a little bit of homework for this. I mean, what do you think about that one-and-done rule? I mean, do you find it as strange as I do, or am I just making too much a deal of it? I, I wish I understood what the what exactly the point of it, of it was. I mean, do they think that, you know, having ha, like having just graduated high school, you're too callow to make the decision? Um, or do they feel that it's going to be a threat to college recruiting if they're immediately eligible to go into the NBA? Is that... The latter is my suspicion. Okay. Uh, so, no, not eligible for the NBA draft until you're 19 years or older so how do the other sports drafts work before you get into this david i'm sorry do do does mlb and nfl do they work the same way all right so in baseball you can go straight into the minor leagues in high school although a lot of people do play college just to get some more experience and frankly build some muscle mass mm -hmm. get that nfl degree. yeah yeah <laughs> in the uh, nfl you have to be two years out of college in hockey you can go in as soon as you're 18 and then the more individual sports golf tennis so on and so forth i mean you can go in pretty much when you're out of high school mm -hmm. so do, did i leave any out there michael that you'd want to hear about or? no those were the ones i was curious about i'm sorry to yeah. cut you off there david no oh, no no that's that's fine i'm not the one who had the answers to those questions i mean some of the some of the things that you reference uh, referred me to nathan uh, talked about you know what what other sports uh, some of uh, what baseball and football in particular did and the reasons. Um, uh, one of the articles that you link to is uh, Reggie Miller talking about uh, the sort of the logic behind it and saying it makes sense for the NFL to want you to get more uh, more play under your belt, but also to gr frankly to grow more <laughs> and get bigger. Uh, right out of high school, you're 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 probably just not big enough and strong enough yet for the NFL's state of play. Uh, but with the NBA, uh, he, he thinks uh, that it's not quite the same. Um, what he proposes, if I, if if I'm if I'm understanding it rightly, is that um, 
coming out of high school, you should be able to play in the NBA, but if uh, if you sign uh, with uh, a college, if you go to a, if you if you um, commit to a college, you should be there for at least two years, I think he says. Uh, to uh, so because uh, and and this was this was something I've uh, that was in uh, another article t- as well is the idea that if it's if it's just one and done, um, you graduate from high school, you're one year. Uh, playing playing college ball and then now you're draft eligible and you leave you don't take that one year of college seriously because the NBA knows who the promising most promising high school players are you know they're paying attention to that and you know there, there were uh, you know some some players were discussed who, were incredibly promising coming out of high school and everybody's watching them go to college do incredibly well for a season of college ball and then immediately get snapped up in the draft all the while failing all their classes passing just enough to maintain um, NCAA eligibility and then dropping everything as soon as the draft happens Um, you know that's not exactly the vision of the student athlete that's uh, that that I think we're supposed to be buying into, so that's one of the problems. And then the other problem is the one that you bring up, which is the the connection between the sports and the money. Um, the point that uh, Reggie Miller makes, which I think is well is well made, is uh, that college he thinks college athletes should have the right to their own image and to be able to market their own image. That's not the quite. That's not the same as being paid to play. Um, on one level, I think a university could claim we are paying them to play based on the fact that they aren't paying to get an education, they aren't paying to live here. They're being, you know, that th- th- they are getting uh, a compensation that comes along with uh, the scholarship and all that all that attends that. Um, but. Uh, I think uh, I think he is right about the the ways in which they could be, um, a, a, which the way the ways that they're not allowed to, but the ways in which their universities are um, capitalizing on them as a brand, as a personal brand, not just the money that they aren't making from playing, but the money that they could be making simply for being themselves on a T-shirt. So. Um, yeah, that that I think is something that probably in years to come that's going to have to be sorted out because it's it's just weird and um, things that are broke tend not to go on forever. Right on that image question, David. It's interesting. My brother went to Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and he was friends with uh, one of their starting basketball players and he described to me a process of basically signing waivers to all of his legal rights so that a digital version of himself could appear in the EA Sports NCAA basketball game. Uh, But I I think back then, and this still might be the case, I've I've never played, I haven't played these sorts of games in several years, but uh, not only was his right to make any money waived, but also his name was erased from his image. So, I mean, it was, it was this bizarre, uh, you know, spiritual experience of, you know, seeing his ghost enter into this digital world, but without any, uh, legal or I guess name connection to his person. Yeah, that feels weird and wrong. I mean, if, uh, yeah, but I, there, there, are, there are other things associated with it too. Um, the the intellectual property rights of graduate students, um, things like that, uh, might also get figured into this. And I don't know what the what what the legal status of all those things is as well. Um, I just know that you know uh, lucrative things happen in chemistry labs as well as on basketball. At, as well as on basketball courts and um, to what extent do 
all students who are doing work that is at least on some level supposed to be part of their life as students, but also um, generating revenue. To what extent are any of them um, being being kept from what are the proper fruits of their labor? Can you imagine mm. having a class where you where you teach a student who makes millions of dollars a year? You know what I mean? Yeah. That'd Say be, more. I'm 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 curious. That'd be uh, the the power dynamics already weird when you have a star athlete in your class, right? I had no Sean Marino in my freshman comp class at UGA. He you know he he made no issue of it. But still, the power dynamics weird because I knew that if I failed no Sean Marino, I would not be teaching anymore, right? I would get in trouble for that because he was the star running back for the football team. Fortunately, that was not an issue. Uh, FERPA, I think, <laughs> demands that I not say any more than that. But think about how weird the power dynamic would be if if you had in your class a student who was not just bringing in money to the university, but himself or herself, but let's be honest, we're talking about male athletes here, um, himself making $3 million a year or whatever, and his face is on, uh, his face is on t-shirts and things like that. Like, I, I just, I think that would be very strange. The, the, the whole NCAA is strange to me though. So. Right. And like I said, I mean, that one and done rule just happens to be one locus where, all of the weirdness kind of swirls together in interesting ways. Yeah, because it's so, so I mean, arbitrary. Yeah, but I mean, to answer David's question, I mean, the NCAA has its official explanation for why they have the one and done. But I mean, in my view, you know, it's the prospect of Allen Iverson, you know, um, trying to think, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, all of these wildly successful NBA players, uh, Kevin Garnett, uh, who went straight from high school into the NBA. I mean, there was a genuine fear there for a while that all of the top talent was just going to by- bypass the NBA entirely. So, I mean, in my you view... You mean the NCAA? Done... Yeah, the NCAA. Yeah, you're right, you're right. So, I mean, in my view, I mean, this is a uh, a peace treaty more than anything between the two leagues to make sure both of them stay profitable by making sure that the you know, most visible and most watched athletes have to pass through one to get to the other. Now they don't really pass through. That would make sense if they had to do four years like the football players. Yeah. And I have a hunch that the NBA wasn't going to give up that much territory. Yeah. I'm with you. you. You made this proposal years ago. Just turn the turn college sports into uh minor league sports and uh get it out of the college altogether yeah i mean i i have thought that for quite some time now that seems like a very sensible solution to all of this the ncaa can just move their organizations over to the minor league teams well anyway michael uh you know we have nodded to it a couple times but i want to have a conversation specifically about the ubiquitous NCAA March Madness bracket. Uh, And since we're talking about money, it's not remotely a secret that the month of March sees more than $10 billion with a B change hands in wagers on in competitions between, you know, young men who can't keep their eligibility if they make $10 for playing in one of these games. So Michael, uh, say what you will about the NCAA bracket, but I've got to know have you ever even filled out a bracket, lost money on a bracket? Do you silently judge other people who lose money on their brackets? No, I've never filled out a bracket. I would have no idea how to do that. Uh, I I would not know what the best teams were. I would not know who was playing whom. I don't I don't understand how anybody ever fills out a bracket except just randomly entering the names in. Uh, I agree. There's something troubling. Uh, I, I hadn't thought about it till you asked the question, but I, I agree there's something troubling about the the amount of money people wager on this. But, I mean, ultimately, we're back to the same problem with college sports, right? Which is that the, the players are working as hard or harder than anybody else, and they see no actual fruits from their labors except this carrot that gets dangled out in front of them. Uh, maybe you'll be able to play in the professional leagues one day. 
So, I mean, this just seems like a piece with that, except instead of instead of members of the NCAA getting rich, you have people in your office making 50 bucks or 100 I don't even know how much people wager on these things. Yeah, I actually knew a guy and uh, actually paid his way through seminary uh, on picking a perfect NCAA bracket in, I think, 1998. Uh, he entered into a contest and won something like $10,000 for picking every one of the games in every round correctly. Dude. That's that's crazy. David, you ever done a bracket? Um no. But this is this is the this is the thing that even brought the NCAA basketball championship to my attention is that I know that people must have been doing this for years, but it feels as if this is the thing that's been growing more and more around, uh, you know, the the people that I talk to. More and more do I hear, see people on social media talking about their bracket. Um, that this this feels like a thing that's growing. And this is uh, one of the factors that uh, I kind of alluded to other uh, earlier about more of the championship, um, more more of the whole uh, more of the whole tournament um, being paid attention to, because more people are concerned about more of it because of their bracket. So it's kind of like playing fantasy football. All of a sudden, you care what the you know trying to think the Miami Dolphins are doing yes even though you've never cared a lick for the Miami Dolphins your whole life yes well I mean okay I mean like that's 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 fine with me like I I, I've got no I've got no beef with fantasy football I mean for some people that's fun um you know I the the but the the that that's just an a, a different kind of thing though but it but you can see how it could be attractive to someone who might not you know the the game in itself might not be of most of interest to them but the task of successfully predicting based on this data and then being rewarded for proper predictions uh, uh successful predictions um i mean that, that seems to attract a, a maybe 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 an, another demographic to bring it into bring it into that audience. Um, uh, I find that deeply distasteful. Do you? Yeah. But uh, I mean, we're back to my not being able to choose a team in college basketball. I, I, the idea of somebody chopping up these sporting events and instead of rooting for, uh, rooting for one particular team to go through, I, I really find that distasteful. Fantasy football probably worse than the bracket because fantasy football encourages you essentially not to pay attention to any actual game. You're you're like running this magical, made up game in the back of your head instead of watching the actual ones that are being shown. Um, the bracket doesn't do that, but I I think there, there's something disloyal about it. Well, that's fair enough. That's fair. And and part of it, uh, and this phenomenon, you know, still just makes me scratch my head, is that uh, President Obama would always release his brackets, and still does. I mean, he did this year before the tournament. Yep. Why is and, that Why is and, that weird? Just because it's illegal, yep. technically? Well, I mean, it's not illegal to fill out a bracket, but I mean, it, it's kind of like when uh, George H.W. Bush was on camera in the late 80s going shopping for socks the day after Thanksgiving, uh, you know, it kind of marched, it, it marked a certain cultural benchmark that, you know, later became, you know, the obscene, you know, Christmas shopping season that we know now. Uh, but I mean, I remember that as the moment where it became something that people on the news talked about. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Obama bracket, I think is one of the one of the features of his presidency that that's uh, sticks out in my mind that 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 I, I thought of as a, as a as a really actually kind of a fun humanizing element. Um, it's it's very easy to take a political figure and sort of reduce them to actions and pol uh, you know political actions and political policies, but that was one of the things that every every time 
he would release his bracket, I was reminded. Barack Obama, human being who likes basketball. <laughs> that's fair enough. That's that's fair enough. I I just found it weird, but David, that is a much more humanizing way to think about it. It it is um, less beneath the dignity of of the office than George H. W. Bush making a big deal about buying socks. <laughs> or or that I, when you when you said the obscene, I was sure you were going to say the obscene question asked to uh, then candidate Clinton boxers or briefs Oof. i had actually forgotten about that but yeah i'll grant that i'll grant that well david to uh turn from the obscene for a moment uh we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that for the past 38 years the ncaa women's basketball tournament has also happened in march with the university of connecticut winning more than a quarter of those tournaments so as you see things david i mean to what extent does the women's tournament share the nation's attention with the men's and what brew of consumerism, sexism, traditionalism, and whatever other isms account for its secondary status in collegiate athletics? Oof. So here's some numbers. Uh, Last year um, was... um, the, and this is this is ESPN Media Zone from uh, last April. The women's uh, uh, the women's basketball championship is in April. It says more than three point eight million viewers for the NCAA Women's Basketball National Championship three game NCAA Women's Final Four up nearly twenty percent. And uh, the the article is basically the 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 average viewer the 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 ratings for the ncaa women's tournament um reached a three-year audience high last year cool uh 23 million people watched the championship game of march madness uh in order to find ratings from march madness last year that uh are comparable to the numbers of what the women's championship got, uh, you would have to go actually back behind the the round of 32, right? So the round of 32 last year got 5.6 million, Sweet 16 got 5.7, the Elite Eight 10.2, the Final Four 16.8, and then the championship game 23 million. So, yeah. 3.8 million, good. Like that's that's really really good. But compared to uh, compared to the men's turn, uh, tournament numbers, um, not not good. And just to show that I'm part of the problem, I said March instead of April, and in fact I wrote down March instead of April. So thank you for that correction, David. No worries. Sorry. Why, why is that, David? Do you think it's just like <clears throat> flat sexism? Um, sorry, I've got I've got like allergy throat right now. A uh, part part of it. Um, well, for they don't they don't they don't play at the same time. Then it would just be conflict, right? Um, the 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 broadcasting conflict. Why? Why don't they? Uh, that's probably some of it. Uh, I googled around on this, and uh, a lot of articles will talk about uh, like comparisons of uh, how fast the games are, how high scoring the games are, um, the quality of the basketball played between men's games and women's games um uh some of the uh some of the articles talking about this problem in women's sports more generally um uh, brought up the fact that uh, it tends to be that when a game is uh is televised that men's sports tend to actually have a higher level of production than women's games more cameras more cuts um, more, more razzle dazzle. Um, you know, I would imagine uh, if I was watching exactly the same 
football game from two camera angles versus all the stuff that they, you know, all the stuff that they did at for, um, you know, the 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 final championship this year um, with you know cameras on the ground and cameras. It seemed just seemed like they had cameras everywhere. They could get every awesome angle. Um, you could watch exactly the same game with, with just less shots and think, wow, that was a boring game and that was an exciting game, but it's the same game. Um, and so that, that, argu- that argument seems to have, you know, a certain bit of weight. But one, uh, one article that I was looking at on uh, the Huffington Post... And this is this is from last March, and it's specifically about the WNBA. Um, why the WNBA's ratings are so much lower than the NBA's ratings? And this particular article talked about. Uh, it said that 75% of the in, of the WNBA's audience is women. Uh, I don't know what the comparable number is for the NBA. But, you know, men account only for 25% of the WNBA's audience. Um, and yet, uh, their viewership is, is, is significantly farther because it's not 75% of women watching the WNBA. <laughs> it's, you know, 75% of their viewership is women. Um, it's actually a significantly smaller portion of the overall population of women who's watching uh, women's sports um, than are men watching men's sports. So it's not just that the men aren't watching the women's sports, it's also that the women aren't watching women's sports. Um, And is that sexism? I don't know. Um, Maybe it has to do with more men being interested in athletics overall than women. Um, Might also have to do with marketing. That that is the, probably the Minnesota thing. Lynx. The women's team has the most uh, the most uh, championships of any WNBA team, but all you ever hear about is the relatively unimpressive Minnesota Timberwolves, the male male team. That almost certainly has something to do with it. My, my guess is that there's no there's no silver bullet. I mean, not silver, but there, there's no one single factor that explains all of it. It's probably oh, a right, lot it of really things. Really is right. Um, but I do think the, uh, in the, this article that I was reading, it essentially said women just need to watch more women's sports because it's important for women. And that felt... That didn't feel like a good reason. Right. If if you've got a, if you have a bunch of people, because women are people, who aren't particularly interested in an activity, never mind their demographic, do they need to start developing an interest in that in that activity because of those demographic reasons? Like that seems that 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 seems incomplete too. So, you know, I, Although, I w- you know it may be. It, it may be that there are women who would like basketball if they watched women playing it and and they don't know that because they've never really given it a chance i mean i don't i don't i'm certainly not going to guess how mm-hmm. many people are like that but there must be right. at least some people like that right oh almost certainly some uh i will say on my side of it that i have watched i have attended far more women's athletics events than i have men's athletic events um, but that has entirely to do with the fact that I had far more advisees, uh, academic advisees, students, uh, who were women, uh, women athletes than man athletes. And I would, and my, my attendance of college games is almost entirely based on my personal connection to who's on the field or court or whatever. Pitch. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 have, I have watched a lot of women's basketball and enjoyed it immensely. I've watched a lot of women's soccer and enjoyed it immensely. Um, but, uh, 
you know, the where where I worked last in Kansas, women's games were before the men's games. And I would watch a women's game, and then sometimes I would stay to watch the men's game. And man, was the men's game so much faster. Um, it, 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 like, watching them back-to-back uh, was was really, really interesting. Um, now, uh, this is a, it was a, a, a small college, a very, you know, not, <laughs> this is not, not NCAA Division One. certainly not professional, um, very good athletes on both the men's team and the women's team, but it was like a completely different world between those two games. Um, watched soccer games, men's soccer, oh, watched a women's soccer game, and then the men's soccer game, back to back, and again, um, they were closer in terms of the speed, uh, in terms of uh, just you know sort of comparable, uh, comparable play. Um, but I will say, uh, my little girl was on the sidelines at a women's soccer game, and she got hit in the head by a ball. Um, I don't think I don't think she would be alive if she'd gotten hit in the head by the ball in the men's game. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, th- this is not to say anything against the level, their level of athletics, but watching them back to back, you know, in what I saw, there was a difference of play. But then I've never seen an NBA team, an NBA game back to back with a WNBA game. That might be more interesting. Yeah, I don't have any answers for this. I just wanted to put the question out there. What um, we need is a Christian feminist podcast episode on the WNBA. Yes. There you go. There you go. Well, Michael, we've already you know nodded to this, and I figured you know a lot of these questions would kind of uh, inform each other. But uh, let's talk specifically about the collegiate in National Collegiate Athletics Association. Now, as David noted, none of us currently works for an institution that fields a Division I basketball team, so this tournament doesn't directly affect any of our basketball players in any of our classes, but it's also a supremely public phenomenon, as we've been discussing, so what does this national event tell us about how the life of the university and the culture of spectator sports relate to each other in our historical moment? Do either of you know what uh, players from teams in the Final Four are the? I'm sorry, in March Madness, what what they do in terms of classes? Are they just gone for a month? No idea. Um, from what I have read, yes. Uh, you know, UGA obviously. I think they made the tournament once during the whole years that I was there. And yeah, they not a basketball were out in the first round. No, not by any means. But from what I've read, you know, IU's team and Kentucky's team and so on and so forth. Yeah professors and honestly mostly TAs are just expected to help them make up the work while they're on the road. Yeah, I don't know that that says anything terribly good. No, I think the NCAA has gotten better over the last 40 years, let's say, at uh, supporting education in addition to athletics. I mean, there was a very famous case, and Lord knows I can't remember uh, what what the teacher's name was, but it was actually at UGA. She was fired for flunking some athlete who deserved to be flunked, and she sued, and that that resulted in the the very large, very expensive, very efficient uh, athletic tutoring center at the University of Georgia, which you know cost a, a good amount of money, but I think does good work in terms of uh, in in terms of helping student athletes be students in addition to athletes because the truth is most of those student athletes are not going to go on to the the major league anything and the ones that do um, are probably not going to be the top of the field just because relatively few people can be right so no sean marino didn't make a huge splash in the nfl much to my chagrin because i really wanted him to uh, do well so that i could tell everybody i taught him um, so I, I think they have, from from my observation, they have gotten better, but still I just can't imagine losing a student for a full month and, and that's saying anything good about the relationship between college and athletics. Um, and, and just in general, the other things we've talked about, the amount of money the NCAA makes off of these students' uh, 
many of whom I, I, I mentioned that most of them aren't going to the major leagues and yet that's that's what the NCAA pushes right it pushes these dreams about being a star when in, in fact really what they should be doing is is paying attention in their classes and you know excelling there that would for most of them that would be better for their future than um than leaving college for a month to go play basketball so right and that's the other part of my uh, proposal that uh if anyone at the ncaa wants to take up uh you're free to name it after me but i say give every student a voucher for every year that they play for an ncaa team that they can come back and cash in after their sports career is over so that they can actually be students for those four years. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, really, they're they're obviously in tension, if not in conflict. And we we all, you know, we don't teach at Division One schools, but we have all experienced this, even at schools our size, because college baseball in the spring results in pockmarked student attendance records, right? Because the the baseball games are held during the week during the day and baseball players miss really an incredible number of classes. Uh, and I don't think that does anybody any favors. Mm, certainly for not me, them. it's the tennis team. We don't, yeah, ha- we don't have a tennis phenomenon. team. It's baseball here. I don't know what it is for you t- grubs. Well, it's, it's, it's all of them. I think, uh, I think HBU might have more, uh, more sports than, than y'all's. Uh, probably HBU is about five times as big yeah. as my school. <laughs> I mean, we have we have football, um, men's and women's basketball, men's and women's soccer, uh, track and field, cross country, uh, baseball, softball, volleyball, beach volleyball, um, uh, men's and women's golf. Uh, I know I'm missing some things fencing probably but um the problem here is it's not the baseball players fault they don't set the schedule it's not the coach's fault they're strong-armed into this by the ncaa what on earth is the ncaa division three doing scheduling baseball games during the week during the day what possible motivation can they have for that uh No idea. <laughs> I mean, I get their motivation with Division One March Madness. I, I get it. I don't agree with that motivation, but I at least understand it. How much money are they making off Division Three sports? Not a whole lot. And you know none of the players are going to go on to the major leagues. Although some of them keep that, I'm going to call it delusion, up entirely too long into their college careers yeah that's sad it's, it's i mean if you want to come to school and play baseball go for it i like baseball but i i think i i think it's absurd that they would schedule those schedule those games during the week and during the day it's it's i, I don't know it's it's immoral yeah yeah and i mean my my and again i, I i'm not even sure if i am secure enough to to say that I have a moral judgment, but what I find weird about it, uh, and it's the weirdness that I always point to, I realize, uh, is again, you know, this ideal that the NCAA puts forth of this, you know, modern Olympic notion of the amateur athlete that, you know, is doing this for the love of the game, not for the, you know, filthy lucre that the NBA plays for. And yet, as you said, Michael, I mean... we all know that the most, you know, brilliant players out on the court in the final four, we know where all of them are going to be three years from now, barring serious injury. So, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those weird uh, double consciousness things where we have to pretend that this is not a minor league for the NBA when we all know that in fact it is. But don't you think in some ways the, the, future NBA careers of the best players are being subsidized by the educations of the less than great players. Oh, sure. Sure. And I mean, that's the, the real travesty of it, I think is that again, that dream of the NBA career is held out uh, at levels that, you know, 
these folks have no no uh they have no place thinking that they have a real shot at the NBA but they still think that they do. Well, and I think it's especially bad for basketball because my impression is in poor neighborhoods, basketball is the sport that that gets held out to them. So you you yeah, get a lot you get a lot of people who are hanging on that and I I I think you get fewer kids from neighborhoods like that hanging on football just because football requires a great deal of infrastructure and uh and costuming what's the word i'm looking for equipment yes i like i like costuming <laughs> costuming yeah, That's yeah. Great. they need and I'm, wa- sure, I'm sure soccer i'm sure soccer would work that way if, if anybody cared about major league soccer enough to make it you know a lucrative career um, but I, I think I think it is especially bad with basketball, and in that sense, the fact that the be, the the best players' future careers are subsidized by the worst players' educations, I think there is something immoral in that. Well, I'm going to leave that lying where it is because I'm looking at time, and it's time to head for the door. Uh, so, David, we're going to go around the horn one more time between. Network television and ESPN, not to mention the torrent of internet commentary. Uh, People have dedicated more words to the NCAA basketball tournament than the three of us have dedicated to everything we've ever talked about, ever, and it's not close. So as we head for the door, I want to go around the horn and get from each of you some question about sports culture, American society, or something else of interest to our Christian humanist listeners that involves this NCAA basketball tournament. David. It needs to be in the form of a question? It doesn't have to be. We're not playing for money. This is NCAA. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nathan's getting rich off of you and me. <laughs> well, at least someone is, right? Um, really, the, the the only thing that I want, that, that, that I feel sort of compelled to do is to step in there and praise the students that I've known who have actually been student athletes who pursued excellence in both realms. Absolutely. Um, I have nothing but admiration for uh, my, my, especially my advisees who I had the closest sort of the, the, the front row seat to both games, as it were, um, seeing seeing the difficulties that they had to deal with, especially when they were in season, especially when they were dealing with injuries, um, being being able to see them uh, really really be excellent uh, is is amazing. Um, I would name uh, Dustin Rojas. He was a bass. Uh, he was a. a, a basketball player at uh, Central who was uh, also a, a business major and he was he was awesome on the court and he routinely um, won uh, the, 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 the business majors there would compete in in kind of regional, I don't, I don't even know what what all this involved, but they would they would go and compete for like uh, presentations and interview skills and stuff like that, and he would routinely be part of that. Um, Libby Regeer, now Libby Regeer Brooks, who was the captain of the women's basketball team at Central, who was also an English major and was just awesome at both. Um, you know this, you know, leading the basketball team in the fall and then in the spring. Um, being the lead actress in a performance of Twelfth Night, uh, my my current ad, uh, my advisee last year who graduated, Cassie James, softball player with as darn near close to a 4.0 as you could get. Um, just I, I've I've gotten to meet some amazing amazing student athletes, and they are there, and they are worth admiring and worth praising. Um, even when there are so many ways in which the system is busted and creaky. Michael, what do you got? I encourage people, I'm again, not a huge sports fan, but I encourage people to see sports, both professional and collegiate, as an opportunity for loyalty. So uh, 
So pick your team, preferably, I would say pick a college you actually went to, or pick a pro team in the state from which you hail. But even if you don't, even if you decide to pick uh, some far-flung team that's doing better, stick with them the rest of your life and root for them. And I think I think there is is real virtue in that, even though I'm not the world's biggest sports fan, obviously. All right, and I guess I'm going to be the one to actually pose it as a question. Um, one thing that I wonder when I look at the NCAA tournament year after year is in this context we find ourselves, you know, not only with the glut of reporting and the glut of media coverage and social media commentary and all of that, uh, but also uh, just with the increasing awareness of race relations in America, how long can the sort of myth of the amateur athlete uh, who is completely separate from you know, the dirty world of professional sports, how long can that myth sustain itself? Uh, I'll confess that I thought that it would be busted a long time before 2018, uh, but it is still a powerful story that people believe. Uh, and I just wonder, first of all, how much longer it has uh, before it becomes a punchline and then what comes next. Uh, so listeners, I mean, you know, uh, this was our little talk about the uh, NCAA tournament. I never thought that we would have gone a full hour on that, uh, but we have. Uh, next week, I just have a hunch we are not talking about basketball, are we, David? No. Uh, next week, we will, be, uh, we will be in the middle of Holy Week leading up to Easter. And so I will be, uh, I'll be selecting a, selecting a text that's appropriate to that. I still have a couple that I'm sort of choosing between it. I know that episode will drop, um, after Holy Week and after Easter, but, um, well, I'm still going to be in that mood and I hope you two gentlemen will be too. Sounds good to me. And, uh, what's interesting is the, uh, NCAA final game is the day after Easter. So <laughs> do with that what you will, grubs. <laughs> I want to thank you listeners for listening. The, uh, Christian Humanist Radio Network is where the Christian Humanist podcast resides. Good catch. You can find us. Thank you. You can find us at, uh, www.christianhumanist.org. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And we implore you, we beseech you. We ask you nicely, dear listeners, leave us some iTunes reviews. That's how we get new listeners, and that's how we get more interesting people, more and interesting people, um, <laughs> any more interesting than our current listeners, listening and jumping in on these conversations. I have now made two saves. I'm not going to go for three. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. And I am Nathan Gilmore on behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.